Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Welcome to Once for All Delivered, a podcast about things in the general area of Reformed theology and culture and so forth. I am Andrew Smith. And I'm Caleb Castro. And we are continuing today an occasional series on comparing catechisms, where we take a look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, with a little help from the larger, and the Heidelberg Catechism in parallel, look at the similarities and differences between them. So if you've been with us thus far, we have gone through Lord's Day 1 and 2 of the Heidelberg, sort of using that as our overarching structure, which then logically brings us into Lord's Day 3, which roughly parallels, along with Lord's Day 4, with questions 11 through 19 of the Shorter Catechism. And then we'll also loop in some parts of the Larger Catechism, too, which basically follows the same order as the Shorter. So today's topic, which in the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, is the second of Lord's Day instruction on the first section of the Catechism, that of our sin and misery. Lord's Day 2, if you listen back to the session on that, uh, regards uh, how we come to know our misery, that is our uh, alienation, our separation from God in sin, and how we learn of this in the law. Uh, Lord's Day 3 gets into a topic that is not very popular in our days. Uh, it deals with the topic of sin. Now, I just want to make a brief note here uh, before we jump into the questions and answers of the Heidelberg and Westminster. You know, sin, sin is overall, it's a difficult thing for man to conceive of rightly, uh, particularly in his natural fallen state. You know, there's uh, really, a, even for many uh, professing Christians, there's a natural undermining of just how sinful sin really is. There's a depths of our depravity, and that's what we're really picking up here. I think part of that is we just simply don't know what it's like to be without sin. I mean, none of us were in the garden. We didn't experience paradise and the ability to live without sin or the state of living without sin. And so it is so strange and foreign to us to even try to conceive of such a thing. Right. And also, too, looking at where we've been before. So uh, we, we introduced the concept of sin and misery before, but where we're looking now is essentially, to put it in the words of the talking heads, how did I get here? <laughs> How did we end up in this state of sin and misery? That this is this is not my beautiful world that was created good and without sin, right? What is the source? Yeah, and so Lord's Day three puts it very blunt. Uh, just to read only the questions for a moment. Uh, question six: Did God create man so wicked and perverse? Question seven: Where does man's corrupt nature come from? And question eight. Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined towards all evil? 
So here in uh, question and answer six, to read the answer now, did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, period. God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God as creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. I like to see this uh, in part, this question and answer of the Heidelberg uh, as a true parallel to uh, the Westminster Catechism uh, 1. Because uh, here is where we have the purpose in, uh, of, of, of man's creation, of his nature, the telos, if you will, that he might truly know God as creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. So that is the chief end of man. All right. Now, uh, just a couple key words here to get us started. Um, and we'll just kind of blitz through this. So here, uh, the Heidelberg in the answer is giving uh, a description of the image of God in which man was uh, created. Uh, this image uh, can be found with a couple keywords here. Man was good. There's a, a purpose towards this goodness. Uh, and if I could say first good, when God said, uh, you know, he, he looked and saw man and, and, uh, and he was very good, this meant that God considered his work, if you will, and saw it as uh, effectual, efficacious, that it was in fulfillment with God's plan and purpose. So God is affirming the goodness of his work. That image uh, uses uh, the language of Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10. It compiles those scripture texts uh, to say that man's image is righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, true knowledge. And so that's what we find in the catechism. Now, what knowledge does is uh, knowledge tells man or ha has man uh, have the ability to know rightly God, his creator. He's also able to understand the natures of the creation around him. We consider how the Lord had the various kinds of animals and, and uh, fish and birds uh, be put before man and uh, Adam uh, names them. He's, he, he, he discerns their nature. Um, and likewise, man was able to know his, uh, his neighbor, um, which we would see when Eve is created from his bone. And uh, he says, this is the bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Uh, he, he understands her nature to be complementary to his. And this is very similar to what you get in question and answer 10 of the shorter catechism. So I'll go ahead and read that. It's how did God create man? So bearing in mind that the Westminster treats sin and misery later, as we looked at before uh, in the catechism, it doesn't come in as the Heidelberg does, assuming that you've already been introduced to sin and misery. It starts with man in his good state. So the answer to that question is God created man, male and female, 
Uh, so adding the distinction of the sexes to what the Heidelberg talked about. And then after his own image and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, so very similar to what we've seen in question six of the Heidelberg. And it also adds with dominion over the creatures. Um, so again, it's using that language of Ephesians four and Colossians three, true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And just as a plug here, uh, if you haven't already, you can go back and listen to what we were doing early on in our uh, Christianity and Culture series on nature and grace. We did talk in some detail about the image of God and the uh, the various issues that go into that. So, for instance, we critiqued uh, Meredith Quine's view of the image of God as purely judicial and other things. So so we had a more detailed discussion of the image back there if you'd like to go hear that. Um, but anyway, and then also uh, similarly talking about the telos, uh, we have question 12. So in between the two, there's question 11, which talks about providence generally. And we'll come back to that another time because the Heidelberg has a much more detailed treatment of providence as well. But question 12 is what special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? And this answer is when God had created man. Uh, so note the sequence here. Note God created man. Then he entered into a covenant of life with him. So the covenant of life also known elsewhere in the standards as the covenant of works. Upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Um, so getting into the, uh, essentially, uh, how did man fall, which Heidelberg 7 will get into. This sets out the terms of the covenant of works, uh, which is the covenant that by the transgression of man did fall into sin. Um, so we're seeing very similar things in how the Westminster and the Heidelberg treat these issues uh, that God created man good in his image. And then what constitutes that image? Uh, this is what theologians like I can think of Lewis Burkhoff as one example talks about. This is the image of God in the narrower sense, uh, which is lost in the fall. Um, again, we discussed this a little more in detail back in our uh, Christianity and culture stuff. So you can get that there. But. Yeah, and uh, just a fast note for uh, closing out uh, question answer six. Um, we see how uh, the, the, this concept of what true righteousness is uh, and holiness is is speaking of um, the true relationship to God and able to uh, then fulfill what is required of him, as we'll speak of in a moment. Man being able to truly know God means that he can know and understand his law, uh, and he can rightly then serve him or, or correctly serve him, and that's righteousness. Uh, likewise, he's able to entirely devote himself, his whole person, his whole being, if you will, head, heart, and hands uh, to God in uh, purity. Man didn't have a disposition that only pulled towards doing sin like he would after the fall or once he sinned he had a desire a will that is able to faithfully love and serve god and that is holiness 
And what the references in both uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Heidelberg in speaking of true righteousness, holiness, and uh, knowledge, this is gleaned from uh, how Ephesians 4.24 and uh, Colossians 3.10 speak about man's nature renewed in Christ. And so it is uh, inferred that Adam had uh, righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, which that, that's a whole further and deeper conversation uh, of, that could be detailed. But the base is that having this knowledge, righteousness, and holiness uh, means that man could serve God wholeheartedly uh, with, with a true and sincere love. And uh, so... The law and obeying it in the garden, uh, and even after the fall, really, obedience to the law is truly love for God. And then likewise, as will be explained in the uh, second great great commandment, uh, it's also a love for neighbor. So the law is love. Um, In order to do that, man must imitate God who is himself love. Uh, So we see how the the massive problem then is introduced with man's fall. Before we go on into that, though, I do just want to add something briefly because I don't know if we'll come back to it. Uh, The Westminster does add the line about dominion over the creatures. The Heidelberg really doesn't get into that. Um, I think the Belgic does, Mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. So it's, it's still in there in the three forms of unity. Uh, But it is important to point that out. Um, There is a concern, there is an interest in man's dominion over the creatures. Which, by the way, uh, while it is marred and damaged at the fall, does not go away. Uh, For instance, it's changed. So, for instance, like there is a certain ways in which creatures can make life very difficult for man and harm him and such. But um, I've been actually preaching through Genesis... uh, here at my church in South Dakota. And we recently looked at the Noahic covenant and what you see in the Noahic covenant in the post fall world is the dominion mandate restated, uh, dominion over the creatures, restraint of the creatures, uh, the fear of creatures. And then other texts that, um, I actually preached this one at Presbytery last fall is Psalm eight, where you see David, uh, very much, uh, praising God, for the continuation of dominion that man exercises over creation. And this is important because uh, there's a lot of teaching in our day that seeks to downplay and mitigate dominion. And we've talked about dominion elsewhere in our Christ and culture series as well. But it's just important to keep to mind uh, the concept of dominion and how important it is and how um, not only the fall but also the gospel, the coming of Christ and everything does not obliterate, does not change the dominion mandate. In this way, the dominion mandate is somewhat implied. Uh, It's implicit in uh, question and answer six. I wouldn't say it's necessarily taught explicitly there. But um, when we consider uh, the language of righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Th- th- this image is an equipping for the threefold office or duty of man. Uh, and that is uh, knowledge to know his creator as a prophet. 
and then to also teach his posterity uh, if he were to multiply about who God is, what he's like, and so on. Uh, he was to love him with all his heart in that devotion would be uh, serving him as a priest, everything that he does being an offering to the Lord. And then to also live with him in eternal happiness, uh, exercising the obedience to the law in righteousness uh, as a king. So uh, so judging and uh, ruling in service of the Lord. Uh, so man, uh, in this way, having this threefold reflection of the Lord's own, a sign even of the Lord's own sovereignty, we could say, uh, he was the crown of creation, of existence. And in with this threefold office, he would uh, serve as the Lord's official deputy, his his vice regent, uh, managing creation. And again, that management as a sign of God's own sovereignty. And all he had to do in maintaining that, I say all he had, uh, was obey the Lord and to love him. And so that's that's where... You know, this next part on, uh, say, the Heidelberg in question seven hits next. Uh, Man's corrupt nature comes from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and paradise. The fall so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. And Andrew's already started to touch on that from uh, from the Westminster Catechism. Uh, if you want to take up what happened with that disobedience. Yeah. So this is question 13. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? The answer is our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. And then a couple of other questions follow up on that. So question 14, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So treating sin generally. And then question 15, what was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the state estate wherein they were created? The sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was there eating the forbidden fruit? And then finally, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? And the answer, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And... I think we could go on because it's still related, but probably come back under question eight to the subsequent questions that further treat the fall and uh, the state of misery that comes with it. So essentially, um, while the Westminster puts it in more explicitly covenantal terms, uh, you know, with the Heidelberg, the covenant theology is generally more implicit. I mean, it's there, uh, but it doesn't say there's this covenant and then that covenant. Um, The Westminster does speak of it in those terms, the covenant being made with Adam and how he fell and how uh, his sin is imputed to all of his descendants. We have here the the introduction of the concept of original sin, which we come back to in more detail in question 18. 
Um, and the state of sin and misery that comes not just to Adam, but to all of us through him. Now, what question after seven is, is getting at is that doctrine of original sin. And it, it probably most closely parallels um, question 16 of the Shorter Catechism in its direct purpose in what it's looking to teach. So original sin is what is being implied, though not using that term. First is that this knowledge of original sin and that man has a corrupt nature uh, is, is revealed by God through the law. And so uh, the law is what brings that knowledge of sin. Um, second is that man had a free will, as Andrew had read from, pardon me, which uh, question answer was it? Um, that would be 13, our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will. Yeah, so the, the freedom of their will. Uh, just a fast note on that. Uh, this this refers to man's uh, inclinations, disposition, a uh, desiring. Man doesn't have, even in the garden, we can say an absolute libertarian free will uh, in that man could still be swayed and pulled by uh, emotions, by impulse, uh, by external influence, as in the case of the serpent's deceit and lies. Only God has that absolute libertarian unrestrained will not being swayed by his own by by passions impulse uh or external influence just to interject we're, we're not talking about libertarian in the political sense no. which is what most people would understand attached to that word now uh, but we're just basically we're talking about libertarian as in having full liberty mm -hmm. uh having you know, complete freedom. And that's where, that's what important to note here. Man does not have absolute unhindered freedom. He's able to be swayed by the serpent in him in sin. And that's part of the problem. Even in this state of prelapsarian state of, uh, of purity, he is able to sin. He is able to fall. So man is not perfect. Uh, the garden is not uh, a perfect final state. And so when the uh, renewal of all things in the new heavens and new earth comes, we're not going to revert to like a state of the Garden of Eden in, in paradise. That, that's what the Lutherans teach. That's not the ultimate existence, if you will. Uh, that said, man has a free will, which is ability to desire God and obey him. But he chose not to do what God commanded. That's what his freedom would lead him to. He chose, both he and Eve, chose to listen to the lies of the serpent and then not rebuke the serpent or rebuff him, but instead to twist the words and commands of God and uh, go into sin. And what this, this sin and taking of the fruit that was forbidden, this shows that, one, man intentionally disobeyed. Uh, God explicitly told him what 
not to do and what to do in what what he's able to partake of in the garden. Uh, and he told him not to have that uh, fruit of that one tree. It's crystal clear. The command God gave was not anything beyond what Adam could handle. We had already said he was entirely equipped with the faculties and the image of God in true righteousness, holiness, and knowledge to obey. And God even warned him of the consequence if he took of the fruit ahead of time. You shall surely die. So it, it, it's right there. He totally understood and knew what God said not to do and what would happen. So it is an intentional, deliberate disobedience. And therefore, Adam, rather than acting in knowledge, acts in folly and foolishness. And that is where uh, the misery and separation from God begins. Um, it's in the fall, in alienation. And the, the very life and existence of man's faculties, man's nature, is flipped on its head. Rather than being in a covenant relationship or fellowship with God, he enters into a covenant or fellowship or relationship under Satan. Uh, his knowledge turns into a foolishness. His righteousness turns to wickedness and his holiness into impurity in a desire to not devote himself to God. So man then in his corruption uh, looks more like Satan's nature. There are small glimmerings, uh, remnants of the light of the image. Man can st still has a reason. Man still has a general sense of morality. Uh, man has uh, is still something of a general rule, uh, will, pardon me. But all those things now are inclined only to doing evil. Like a, say when you have um, a car, your car is out of alignment and it only pulls to the right side of, uh, of the road. It tugs, all, uh, tugs over there no matter what you do. In trying to correct the wheel, it keeps tugging over there. Well, this is the same of sorts, uh, if we're to use uh, analogy. Yeah, the, another issue that can come up here when we're talking about uh, the fall, because it's often, and I know this because I came up through like the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement, and it's often very reductionist treatment of Reformed theology is. Uh, but I would hear it often spoken of as, well, Calvinists don't believe in free will and Arminians do believe in free will. And that's not really true. That's not really correct. Um, as we see here in our confessional standards, uh, we see it here in the Shorter Catechism. And then actually the Westminster Confession devotes an entire chapter to this free will. Um, Adam and Eve did have... Uh, properly understood a free will and even we though fallen we have a free will to a point it's stained by sin you know it's like that misaligned car is always going to pull a certain way we're not able not to sin any longer but we do still as rational and moral beings make real choices that matter um now it's all according to god's secret decree and his purposes, and ultimately for his glory. But at the end of the day, we do, in a real way, do have 
and exercise will. There's a second phrase here in question and answer seven uh, that says the first part had said, well, where does the corrupt nature come from? And the second part, though, now speaks directly to that corrupt nature, saying this fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. And again, this 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 points at the doctrine of original sin, but in another way, it, it also speaks to what original sin is. Now, original sin has two aspects to it of what we call uh, original guilt and original pollution. Now, this question and answer speaks more to what original pollution is, but we can perhaps note both really quick. This would be a good time to look at question 18 of the short. That was going to ask, actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? And the answer is the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, uh, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature. So there you have that pollution element, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. So yeah, in question 18, we, we see the these, these two facets of original sin, the guilt and the pollution. We also see here that... Uh, we have the guilt of original sin, but then also this original sin serves as the basis for all of our own sins, our actual personal sins that we commit. Um, it's not as though the two can be so neatly separated. Uh, so, for instance, Roman Catholics teach that in your baptism, your original sin is washed away, and then you're able to do meritorious works, and you're able to essentially not sin i don't really know how they come up with that and then if you do sin then you have to go do confession and penance and all that kind of stuff it's clearly original sin remains because it is from our original sin that all our actual sins proceed isn't it uh, a restoration of sorts of the uh super added gift as far as i understand yes yeah um that essentially bab baptism uh, put you back where Adam was, and then you can you can do what he could have done. Right. So it's but then we don't like in the garden. Uh, we, we spoke a little bit about this in uh, one of our actually it might have been the first or second episode um, on talking about nature and grace. Mm -hmm. How man is basically uh, for the Roman Catholics. Man is created and uh, has general faculties, you know, intellect, affection, and will. Um, but God then adds uh, the element of, of, of grace to him to mm. obey. And so... Uh, to, to restrain concupiscence. Right. To restrain uh, man's inclination to sin. Right. So already there in the garden, you have a nature plus grace. Whereas here in the Reformed position, we're saying that... Uh, with man's creation and the breath of life put into him, that is when man is endowed with the image of God, of righteousness, holiness, and knowledge as part of him, even then as part of his nature. But here, and this is the problem, that nature is corrupted. 
And another way to also talk about this doctrine of original sin is perhaps what's a little bit more familiar uh, in in reformed terms. Um, It's the doctrine of uh, total depravity, which is another one that's uh, misunderstood by Arminians and uh, and other camps. The the concept of depravity or corruption uh, is another way to say it, total corruption is um, that when people hear the word total, they think man is absolutely, without qualification, uh, corrupted. They think that's what the Reformed are teaching. So that man cannot do any sort of kind of good, like doing uh, digging a well in Africa as part of the Peace Corps or whatever, uh, cannot be considered good, uh, a good thing. It's not quite what we're getting at uh, what the reformed are getting at in talking about depravity. We're saying that uh, man's faculties holistically are corrupted. We had uh, implied earlier in talking about how righteousness turns to foolishness, affections to uh, affections towards um, impurity and righteousness to wickedness. So that at its base, because man will not do any action to the glory of God and the benefit of his neighbor over himself, he cannot do any good work. And we use that illustration of the uh, car alignment. Mm-hmm. So, in, in, so depravity is talking about a general, it's speaking to the disposition of our wickedness. It is total in that it affects all mankind and it affects the whole man. Um but it's often I often hear it as this distinction between total depravity and utter depravity. Total depravity in that, yeah, everyone is depraved and all of our person is uh, corrupted by sin. But we're not utterly depraved in that we are not as wicked as we potentially could be. Um, there is still uh, some, these shattered remnants of the image in us that incline us to doing some good, even if we do it badly and if we do it for wrong reasons even our best works are are stained with sin and corrupted Um, but also you know god's general restraint of wickedness you know we've kind of hit on this before too even talking about like the second use of the law and things like that and the law of god written on the hearts even the worst of pagans still retain some semblance of morality uh it's Again, often very corrupted. You think of all the, you know, you think of how like ancient pagan tribes engaged in human sacrifice and things of that sort. And obviously this corruption can go pretty far, but it it is limited in a certain extent. Because if we were utterly depraved, if we were completely evil all the time, I mean, we would do nothing but destroy ourselves and destroy the world around us. Well, there's a... There's a great illustration on this um, from uh, J. Van Bruggen, uh, a Dutch minister uh, in the 20th century for the uh, the Gereformeerde uh, Kerk and the Freigemacht, the, um, the liberated Article 31 churches um, in the Netherlands. He, he, he speaks about how, uh, well, I'll just quote him here. Now, the Lord uses general, natural, civil, outward, moral actions um, 
he uses them to ensure that society does not fall apart. Like you said a moment ago, Andrew, in the civil uh, sense of the law, in the general curbing of wickedness in society. But in all these things, man does not fulfill the law of the Lord, for he does not do them in love of the Lord. This is evident from the story about the building of the Tower of Babel. Men did, quote unquote, good to each other in that situation. They did not fight each other, but helped each other in complete harmony. What peace and prosperity. But in the process, they helped each other unanimously to forget God and to resist his commandment. Thus, they hated God while doing good toward each other. So there's still something that could be considered uh, in a anthropological, very general anthropological sense good works unto each other but uh does not fulfill the law of god and therefore is against god going back a moment to uh you know original sin um just want to make a note on original guilt this basically means that uh all people bear our first parents guilt of uh disobedience um and people can think well why is that fair you know, why do I have to suffer? They're the ones that messed it up for all of us. Uh, how can God threaten us with eternal punishment for something someone else did? Oh, and this is because, uh, this is the importance of understanding the covenant of works. Adam was the head, the representative of all man who, uh, who was in him, in his, in, in his seed. All man would come from Adam. And so as uh, the representative of man, uh, his sin is counted as ours. Uh, Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, and then there's that original pollution, uh, second consequence of original sin. Uh, and this is exactly what... Uh, question answer seven says the poisoning of our nature from conception even as david would say in psalm 51 5 that we are all corrupted uh genesis 5 3 says that adam fathered a son in his own likeness you know that in in that verse it doesn't place the emphasis of uh adam having a son in the likeness of God, but now in his own like nature, which is a fallen nature. Original pollution speaks to that actual total corruption, not just that God counts the guilt of Adam's sin to us, but also that that original sin taints us, like dropping a... Uh, you know, a, a drop of uh, pure black India ink into a glass of water. It is so filled, that glass of water, that it is black. Or like, for instance, if somebody dropped a drop of cyanide in that glass of water, <laughs> you're not going to want to drink it. Even if it's just a little bit of it, it it's so all corrupting that it's it's deadly. Well, that's all the time that we have. Thanks for joining us uh, for this episode. Uh, we're still trying out this uh, this uh, pithy sign-off from our friend Mark Scaturo. Uh, thanks for joining us on Once for All Delivered, uh, where we hope to faithfully deliver until we're all delivered. Fiend. Fiend. And 
Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our Substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once For All Delivered. No, that, that is all that we have uh, time for. Uh, we thank you for joining us uh, on Once For All Delivered. And here we hope to faithfully deliver. Ah, goodness, I can't. I, I read the word wrong. Okay, one more time. Sorry, Heidi. Hi. Caleb can't read. I can't. Oh, yeah. It's, his, it's a problem. So we're picking up, uh, um, trying out uh, the suggested uh, pithy sign-off phrase from our friend Mark Scaturo. So... Thanks for all, uh, thanks for all, <laughs> wow, bloopers. Okay, one more time. Like I said, can't one read.